0: Evan, do you have a mic on your headset? Yes, I do. Pull it away from your mouth. I already did. Pull it away more. <laughs>
1: This is sponsored by Harvest. I use them for tracking work and invoicing clients. You can get a 30 day trial at getharvest.com. Use the offer code RR after your 30 day trial to get 50% off your first month. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 13 of the Ruby Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. We also have Evan Light. For the record, I'm drinking green tea. <laughs> green tea? Green tea. Okay. We also have Jeff Schoolcraft. What's up? And I'm Charles Maxwood from code.com This week, we're going to be talking about DevOps. So, um, I've heard the term DevOps. Is is there kind of an official definition of what this is, or is it just developers that run servers? I thought it
2: was developers who basically play at being sysadmins.
3: Um, the way I've, I've always seen it is it's not developers doing something. It's more along the lines of instead of logging into a server and doing stuff manually, you write code that does it for you, well, yeah, so okay. it's it's more of the automation scripting side. And most of the people I know are actually system administrators I get into it, but some developers get into it because they know the code side.
1: Okay, so um, we're we're all pretty familiar, I think, with the with the tools that are out there like Chef and Puppet. Um, what are you guys using? Heroku.
3: I <laughs> thought I get that out there early.
1: Well, that, that's fair enough. But... Um,
3: I'm using Puppet and. So basically, you know, standard vanilla puppet. And then I'm also using um, a Rails plug-in called Moonshine, which is by Rails Machine. And it does... It takes Puppet um, and hooks it in with Cap Astrono and does a whole bunch of stuff. So the end result is whenever you deploy using Cap, it actually runs your Puppet stuff. So it's kind of like DevOps on deploy.
1: Right. So when you deploy, it goes in and if you've specified a specific version of Apache or Nginx or something, then if if that's not the version that's running, it'll upgrade it or what have you.
3: Yeah. And you get a, a couple configuration files and stuff and you can say like, Oh, there's a, a bug in Passenger, so we're going to redeploy and it will, you know, download Passenger, recompile it. And it'll know that, oh, I recompile Passenger, I need to restart Apache and all, you know, all the standard DevOps recipe type stuff.
1: Okay, cool. Um, so is this something then that you would run against, I don't know, against your server when you needed to deploy a new uh, instance
3: of your application? Uh, No, and that's actually a good thing is... There's kind of two styles when doing DevOps. there's this kind of the server setup like you go from blank server to I have all my stuff configured. Um, and then there's also the kind of ongoing maintenance, which is you already have a server it's running and you need to do upgrades you need to make changes to it. And those actually some people try to split them into different tools, but the better tools actually merge those into the same thing. So puppet can work with a clean server or it can work with stuff already there. Um, moonshine is basically cause it's using puppet. It works in either case. There's like a bootstrapping script where it gets Ruby installed and all that. But for the most part, every time you deploy, it runs through and says, do you have your database installed? Is your database running? Is Apache installed? Is Apache running? You know, all of that kind of checks. And so it slows down your deployments quite a bit, but it also makes sure your server's always running right.
0: right. Cool.
1: So has anyone here used Chef? I've tinkered with it
2: just
0: a little bit, but nothing serious. One of my clients uses Chef. They've got an engineer deploy, so everything's managed through Chef.
1: Yeah, I've used it under the same context. I haven't actually like set up a Chef server or anything, and and done deployments. But I've I've heard a lot of good things about the recipes and just the breadth of the recipes. So um, I I don't know I don't know a whole lot about Chef though. There is a show out there, a podcast. It's kind of inspired by the format that we follow with this and Ruby Rogues and JavaScript Jabber, and it's called Food Fight. And they talk a lot about DevOps and, and Chef. And uh, yeah, it sounds like there's there there's a recipe recipe for almost anything you need with Chef. Um, Eric, wh- why did you choose Puppet over Chef or some of these other ones? Was it just because of Moonshine or was there another kind of driving reason for that?
3: Um, there's a couple reasons. The first one is I started looking at it a long time ago. I think Chef just came out and it wasn't really that stable. And I don't know if it's still anymore, but it used to require CouchDB and a whole bunch of other things. And I honestly just couldn't get it running. And kind of a side note, I've been doing system administration, shoot, five, six, seven years now. So I I know my way around Linux, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't get Chef working. And another thing is Puppet Labs, the creators of Puppet, they're actually one of my past clients so i know the founder i know some of their um their guys some of their support team. so it's just easier for me to get puppet running and then i found moonshine and figured oh look moonshine actually does what i need for this actual app you know the every deployment type stuff and so just all of those factors combined to i'm gonna i'm gonna use puppet instead of chef and really they're both good tools they both do the job mm-hmm. uh, it's just a matter of like which one fits your style and if you have like existing mm-hmm. infrastructure like engine yard is chef based you know, that's if I was going on in I would learn chef. It's that kind of thing.
1: Right. That makes sense. Yeah. I actually know Andrew Schaefer. He used to live out here in Salt Lake City and he, he was one of the co-founders of Puppet Labs. And then I guess the other founder is Luke Redpath. Yeah. And uh, yeah. or no,
3: not Redpath. Um, Canes. Canes.
1: Okay. Anyway, they they've done some they've done some really cool stuff. Um, I don't remember which one it is, but I think one of them uses a DSL and the other one uses just plain Ruby for their DSL, I guess.
3: Um, yeah, Chef is plain Ruby with like Chef DSL class stuff. Puppet has its own DSL. It's very Ruby based. Um, I've actually found it's kind of similar to javascript in the way you use it but it looks like ruby but puppet also has um its own ruby dsl too, so puppet can actually do two different styles but i mean realistically for what i do and what most people who probably listen to this podcast are going to do they're going to basically download and use open source ones that are already out there and all that they're going to do is kind of gluing the components together right. and so you, the dsl stuff really doesn't come up as often as you would think it mostly comes up when you're writing brand new code
1: Right, that makes sense. So um, I'm, I'm a little curious. What uh, Linux distribution or distributions are you guys using? I know Evan keeps saying Heroku.
2: I didn't say anything because you already said it.
1: Um, I, um, I, God. I was just going to chime in. I... I I tend to like uh, Ubuntu, if I can pick, or a Debian-based you know, system. Um, I, d- I was a systems administrator at a university that used Red Hat for six years, so I'm pretty familiar with the tool sets that come on Red Hat, but uh, I, I just I just like the way that, um, uh, what is it, aptitude, apt, apt-get. Um, uh-huh. I, I like the way that that runs um, maybe a little bit better than, than the Red Hat stuff. It seems like it's more up-to-date and things like that.
2: And when I use Linux for home use,
3: usually it's usually home use, I use Ubuntu. And, yeah, I'm pretty accustomed to apt-get, and, yes, it works fine for me. And see, for me, um, I use Debian quite a bit, but now all my stuff's Ubuntu. Um, laptops, Ubuntu. Uh, servers are the Ubuntu long-term support versions, mm-hmm. which kind of sucks because they've been out for a while now, and there's a new one coming soon. So it's like, you know, you got really old stuff, but it's nice because it's long-term support it's going to be stable and especially for servers like you really don't want to be changing things a lot um yeah. and i think i think heroku actually uses ubuntu or they might use debian i don't remember whatever they use under the scenes
1: yeah it's one of those so um i'm not sure if i was completely clear so does moonshine then do server setup for you or do you have to do that yourself and then it'll maintain it from then on
3: um kind of both i uh, for moonshine to work you need to log in and set your root password, set a couple directories. And I think you just need to create a user. So like whatever your deployment user is. And then if you've used Capistrano, you know there's a cap setup task, which basically gets everything ready for Capistrano. And then there's the cap deploy that actually deploys and does all that. Moonshine's similar. There's a, a Moonshine setup that will download whatever Ruby you, you want, get it in there. Um, Install Ruby gems, install the few gems Moonshine needs to bootstrap. And then when you do your normal deployment, Moonshine runs through its entire batch of recipes and sets everything up.
1: Okay. So there is some setup then. Is Moonshine available as a gem?
3: Um I last time I checked, no. Last time I checked it's a plugin. It might be getting gemified, but I don't remember.
0: Okay. It's only been only been very recently that Moonshine has even supported Rails three, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. Rails 3 is semi-new. Um, it supported Bundler a bit before that, but both of those are semi-new stuff. And most of the deployments I do are Rails 2.3 pre-Bundler, so it worked perfectly. Um, I have it on a Rails 2.3 that uses Bundler, and Moonshine's kind of a bit tweaky, but it's just a matter of you got to set up Bundler in Capistrano and in Moonshine, I think. But it's it's actively worked on. I know Rails Machine uses it for most of their infrastructure, so it's not like someone wrote the scripts and put it on GitHub and then kind of walked away from it. This is it's probably something that'll be supported for a while.
1: All right, sounds good. Um, so one other thing that I'm a little concerned about then, if it's a plugin, um, because I'm assuming that it is not an engine, is that uh, yeah, as of Rails, what is it, uh, three four? Four. They're they're getting rid of the plugin infrastructure and forcing you over to engines.
3: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the idea of getting rid of plugins like that just in general for Rails is kind of suspicious. Like, it's a big major change, and they're going to require like a lot of changes in the community. So I, would, I wouldn't I would be surprised if there's some gem you can install that basically re-enables plugins, you know, and you can always load plugins yourself just with manual requires. So if stuff isn't gemified by that point, you could probably hack around it, and just conceptually, I think Moonshine and Moonshine actually has its own plugin system too. Mm -hmm. I think all of those could be gems. I think it's just a matter of like, you know, doing the work to get them packaged and tested. Yep.
1: All right. So um, any other comments or questions about some of the technology behind DevOps? Because I have other questions, but they're not, they don't directly address that.
3: Um, I mean, one thing, it's kind of more of a a higher level. Like you need to think about why you're doing DevOps. Um, For me, the reason why I do it is because I can log into servers and do stuff, but I don't want to have to all the time. And, you know, I can actually change one thing and it's stored in Git that says I upgraded to passenger 3.1 or whatever. And if I need to roll back, I can see when I upgraded and actually track like why I made this change, like with the Git log. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a reason for me. Um, some people go and do a lot of DevOps because they have to manage, you know, a dozen, two dozen, three dozen servers. And so, you know, sitting there on the console and doing it all by hand is a waste of time.
2: Well, not only that,
3: I mean, you
2: have more consistent configuration management that way if you script it. I mean, that way, you know, when you run a command, it'll execute across all those machines rather than if you do it manually, you might forget to hit one of them possibly. Yeah, Yeah, that too. So repeatability.
1: Yeah, and that was a big thing when I was uh, a systems administrator at, at Brigham Young University was, I mean, everything we did was, was scripted, and it was really for that reason was just so that you could um, you could make the changes, roll them out, and know that they were consistent everywhere, and you could you could target the machines that needed it and, you know, skip the machines that didn't, so...
3: Yeah, and when I used to system them and I had a bunch of little scripts that we had like a definition of here's our web servers, here's our database servers, I can run the command and what it will do is iterate over each web server, log me in through SSH, when I close that SSH session, it logs me to the next one and so it's like I use that to make sure I would actually do everything on every server I need to, Mm -hmm. but it's still a matter of once you're logged in through SSH, you have to remember to type all the commands and have all these wikis with all your documentation and, you know, step one through 42 and all that.
1: Yeah, in a lot of cases what we would do, and I think some of these systems actually work this way, is that we would actually copy the script up into some kind of bin directory or bin folder that was in our path. And then, you know, and then you could just uh, script the, the login and run the script from there.
3: Yeah. And that's actually my puppet configuration right now. So, Chef does this and Puppet does it. There's like, you have a client server model, you have your server where everything's stored, and all the client servers, or I'm just going to call them clients, all the clients connect to it and get all like, what do I need to configure? Um, I use Puppet in a solo mode where there is no server. You basically log into the the system you want to do the work on, and you run Puppet with a few flags, and it just applies whatever it needs for that system. And so I actually have a couple, you know, simple wrapper scripts and shell scripts. So I log into a system and say, run my puppet stuff. And it's just a command line thing I run. It's manual, but it's kind of a step towards where I need to be. And I have the same thing for actually bootstrapping. It's a shell script that would download Ruby 193, I think, get it compiled, download Ruby gems, install the I think Puppet Ruby gem, and basically then my server is bootstrapped and ready to go. Right. So I mean, no matter what you do in DevOps, you still have like those those little shell scripts that get you bootstrapped and get get everything started. Right.
1: So another question I have then is, do you use something like Vagrant to set up staging servers locally?
3: Um, Not for staging servers. I use Vagrant if I'm testing configuration or if I want to, like, okay, so I use Vagrant, like, if I'm writing a new, I was working on some Nagios stuff. And Nagios, if you don't know, is monitoring of, like, you have a Nagios server that checks and does a ping, like, is this other thing up and running? Is this site down type thing? So you need at least two servers to really do it the good way. So I used Vagrant to kind of boot up those two virtual machines using, Mm -hmm. um, what is it, VirtualBox, and then wrote all my Puppet stuff, destroyed those virtual machines, booted them back up clean, and made sure that my code worked. Once it was done, then I was able to push it out to actual production. Um, But I don't know if you could use it as staging because staging implies this is the same as production, but live users aren't going to it, just internal users are. And so Vagrant kind of, because I think it requires VirtualBox, it's not really the right tool for that.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I just meant in general, if you are if you just want a machine up um, that's in your local network that, you know, is running your app so you can, you know, test it out there, test your deploys or whatever.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, in that case, like uh, a test server that you can just throw away later. Yeah, Vagrant's vagrant's perfect for that because, yeah. once again, you can write the little, what's it called, a Vagrant file where it's like, I want a server with this much RAM, this IP address, and, you know, that way you're once again storing in Git like, you know, what you're using to test against. And maybe you were testing against, you know, the latest Ubuntu, but your actual live server is an older Ubuntu, and you can – looking at git you can say oh look that's going to be my problem i'm going to have problems with packaged versions or whatever later on Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah that's one thing that i want to bring up really quickly is that uh, usually in in smaller applications i mean i've seen everything from you know just ha- having having an actual state staging server and a production server but i've also seen setups where it's literally you know you finish the code you check it in and you deploy directly to production which you know may or may not be the right way to go. It depends on the trade-offs and the return on investment for your, um, your staging server, how much money are you going to lose if, if you deploy something that doesn't work the way that you need it to or doesn't work at all. Um but it, it seems like the the most robust setups, they have something, some concept of like a development environment and that can either be running on your local development machine or can be something like what's running on VirtualBox or something like that if you want it to more closely emulate what's going on out in production. And then there's a staging system that, as Eric said, basically mirrors and you know it, in every way possible it looks exactly like production except um, the only people who are going to be hitting that are basically your your people who are verifying that it works right. So it's usually stakeholders, uh, developers, QA people and uh, you know anyone else who's kind of on a beta you know program like that. And then um, the last thing is then you have your production. And so the production machine is is you know where you're running your application it's usually a little bit more secure um you know you you restrict who has access to that and things like that so um anyway i just wanted to kind of walk through that because a lot of people i found aren't really familiar with that kind of a setup so
3: yeah and one thing is for the past couple years i basically told every client you need to have a staging server set up because i'll write code on my development site or development machine push it up the staging, that's where they will, you know, do the acceptance test or kind of run through it themselves, make sure everything's good. And then it goes out to production. And so you have kind of a three-step process. Well, with Chirp, because I'm kind of my own internal customer for building Chirp, I actually skipped the staging environment. And so I write on in development, I push it up right into production. Um, the only reasons I can do that is because I have a continuous integration server to make sure stuff doesn't break stupidly and then i have kind of a couple tools around to make sure like if in production things break i'm notified about it really quickly i actually will get a phone call and so that way it's kind of like i remove that whole staging thing that i have to go through and so i can deploy faster um the other thing is is like if i had a staging site all i would do is push to it click through on the mouse a couple times and just click around the site and not actually really test it and so the value for a staging was really low Um, And that's something like as a freelancer, you kind of need to talk to the business, figure out what the risk is like, you know, if you're if you're doing stuff that's going to take their main site down that might be too much of a risk and they might want you to set up a staging server or, you know, I've seen one where you have a staging server where, you know, code goes to you right away. And then I've seen one that also has a QA server where once things are good on staging, it goes to QA. And that's where the formal QA process takes over and all that.
1: Yeah, that, that's something too where, um, yeah, it really depends on the client's risk in my opinion as well. I mean, I've hosted stuff for clients and that, that's another question that I want to ask is, you know, when you want to do that and how do you manage it. But uh, anyway, um, so yeah, it, it it just depends. I mean, if if they're just doing a, a beta and people kind of understand, hey, this might be a, a problem or what have you, then, you know, you, you can kind of figure out what the trade offs are. But once they're out in production, they're making money with it, you know, then then they will assess where the downtime is and how that will affect them. So um that that does lead into the other question. And that is, is um, in a lot of cases, I have clients that come to me that don't know how to host a Rails app. Either they're um, they're a shop that does have servers and and does have um, IT guys, but they you know they're not familiar with setting up a, a Rails hosting server um, with, with Passenger or anything else. Or they, you know, they're just some guy that has some idea that's, you know, paying me over the next few months to develop a website for them. So, um, what what's your take on on setting up hosting for um, for a client? And do you ever actually host the clients like kind of a a, a beta site where they can go and look at it? Um,
3: yeah. So. So um, for me, I used to use Heroku for some things, um, but I've had some problems with Heroku, just outages and stuff. I still use Heroku for my own internal apps and for, like, free apps that if it goes down, I don't really care. Um, all of my customer apps and all of my own, like, you know, mission-critical site apps are all on virtual private servers, either at – it used to be slicehost was my main one, but they've been bought by Rackspace. So I'm either at Linode or I'm at Rackspace on the Rackspace cloud. Um, Both of them are really good. I'm trying to evaluate which one's the better one for me. Uh, Linode's a bit cheaper. Uh, Rackspace has a bit more support. So it's just kind of trade-offs. I don't host them myself. I make my client actually buy the server. But I actually do most of the system administration for them. So, uh, you know, in one case, I've actually set up Moonshine for them and had it. So whenever I do a deployment, it goes out to their server. And then a couple other clients, I would just push code to their Git repository and then they would actually go and do a deployment. And then a couple other ones, um, I wouldn't use Moonshine. I would just log in every month or so and just do you know, the manu- manual system administration stuff. Mm-hmm. So I guess that I get to play Heroku
2: advocate during this whole conversation because I generally use have used Heroku for pretty much everything. I've had clients who did their own hosting and actually have moved to Heroku. And for the most part, the reason is that a lot of people just don't want to have to deal with DevOps. I've used Linux since the mid-90s. I've used it off and on, though. I've developed on it before. And yet I, I don't like having to play sysadmin. I just want to build stuff and deploy it. If you don't need a particularly customized deployment environment, that is, if you don't mind having each and every component of your system on a different virtual machine somewhere, well, in the Amazon cloud and in the same zone, then Heroku is not so bad. I mean, you're, you're pretty much guaranteed with Heroku that you're going to have your memcache D on a separate machine from your Rails instance on a separate machine from your your database, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the only problem there is you just have to be aware that, that every single time that you call from one service to another that there's network latency, and of course it adds up. But um, as far as outages, this is where I feel like I'm, I'm defending Heroku. So Heroku, you guys can send me a credit to Evan at tripledogdare.net. But um, <laughs> yeah, but, but, but that said, uh, I I only had the uh, one bad outage you know, with Heroku when when their uh, when EC2 went to hell. Oh, you know, and maybe that'll get bleeped. When EC2 went out and uh, Heroku didn't come back. When EC2 came back, but. Um, other than that, I, I've experienced—I think it was just one or two very small outages, on the order of like hours—and otherwise they've been fine. Uh, I use them for staging servers all the time for clients to to play with things that before they go to production. I usually use a free environment for that, unless the the and I guess in the rare cases when the app has been so complex that it just wouldn't work in a completely free environment, or if you know there were features, moving parts, like for I was using WebSolar or something like that, I'd have to pay for that. Um, and I say, I pay. No, I don't. I would have the client have a Heroku account, have them give me access to the project, so that way I can manipulate things, but they pay the bills. And that's t- that tends to work pretty well. And in terms of justifying it to the client, all I have to tell them, I mean, Eric, I assume in your case that you have a bunch of scripts written in Moonshine already that you just reuse across projects, right? Yeah. So if the client doesn't already have that, sorry, I've got a cat here who's getting into things, but uh, if the client doesn't already have that, then either they're going to write stuff like that on their own, because I don't have either, or um, or they're going to use Roku. And that automation saves them the investment of having to build their own automation. Um, So the money that they spend... On Heroku, at least for a while, is, is cheaper than paying for someone to do the DevOps work.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with most of what Evan said. I mean, uh, the, the trade-off really... Well, he outlined the trade-offs pretty well. The things that I like about Heroku are, yeah, that uh, the, the deploy via Git is, like, dead simple.
2: Oh, yeah, I didn't mention that, but the deploy via Git's nice.
1: Um, the, the other thing is, is if the client is insisting on using a database system other than uh, PostgresQL then um, then you can't host it on Heroku or at least not true, not you, true. You, you can but you have to point it to a third-party system that's running a yes.
2: database but that's not hard I've done that before um, because I had one client that for whatever reason wanted to use um, uh, Amazon's MySQL and well we used that and it was just a matter of setting an environment variable in uh, the Heroku configuration it's piece of cake yeah So it's just yet another component that's external to Heroku at that point.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, that that's pretty much all there is. The other nice thing about Heroku is that as you upgrade the plans and you get more, I don't remember if they still call them dynos or something else.
2: Yeah, they still call them dynos.
1: But, but basically they're just, you know, units of utilization. I, I don't really know how to define them well.
2: But, but they're, they're a single Rails instance, and, yeah, they have some equivalent amount of memory and, and uh, horsepower associated with them. Right.
1: So, you know, as as you use more resources with your application, then they may say, okay, you're out of resources you need to upgrade. But uh, the nice thing is is that it it scales up pretty seamlessly. I, I really yep. haven't seen anyone have any problems with scaling on Heroku. So that, that's another trade-off where with with the other DevOps solutions like hosting it on a virtual server or something somewhere, you know, you have to set up the load balancers, you have to um, you know, set so make the the back end machines available to the load balancers, maybe set up some kind of reverse proxy to to yep. to handle all of the, the caching. And if
2: you're concerned about how quickly you can scale up and scale down, well scaling up on Heroku was just a matter of literally throwing a switch and then waiting a few seconds. Yeah. And scaling up when you're doing when you're handling your own scaling is usually a matter of provisioning another VM and then firing it up and that could take, I don't know, an hour or two, maybe unless you have them sitting around, in
1: which case they're costing you money anyway. Well, in a lot of cases, you can clone them, so.
3: Well, I mean, here's something also to think about, and so it doesn't seem like it's a pro-con Heroku argument. All the things you guys talked about, the ease of deployment, the scalability, all that, is for the ease of deployment is for people that don't have, you know, scripts already
0: mm-hmm, The right.
3: scalability stuff is about for public sites.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: For me, 99% of my apps are internal business. Ones. Ah, okay. And
2: so the loads a lot more predictable.
3: The, in order to s- require to scale one of these apps, HR at these companies has to hire a thousand people and you know, there's a, there's a bottleneck in the organization. And so right. the, load's and the other, yeah, the other thing you need to think about, um, I mean, it, it comes down to client requirements. I had a government, uh, a government agency as a client, and I had a, a European educational institution as a client. The government said, "No, we will not let our data go on a public cloud like Amazon S3 or any of that stuff. Any data, I mean, I can't use S3 uploads to give them files." Um, and then the the group out of Europe, they're like, "It's too much lag for us to get on to use Heroku," and so. Your client requirements are going to really dictate your hosting a lot more than anything else. If it's a standard US-based startups type thing, Heroku might be the best thing to go. But you know, it, once again, it boils down to what your clients want and what kind of risk they're willing to accept too. Because you know, like you were saying, Heroku has outages, but when Heroku has an outage, your hands are pretty much tied. You just got to wait for them to bring it back up versus a VPS, you might be able to do some system admin work to kind of patch it along or whatever. And so it just depends on where you're shifting the risk to.
1: That's true. And the other thing is, is we're talking about scaling trade-offs, but there are other trade-offs. I mean, um, if if you need some kind of specialized service or things like that, and, you know, you don't want to worry about, you know, connecting from Heroku to the third-party service or whatever, or you feel like, you know, if you had kind of an overall uh, security protocol that you have across all of your servers to manage, this, that or the other, then in a lot of cases, you know, you you may wind up setting something up um, to, to manage that kind of thing across all of your servers. And you might be better served by getting some kind of uh, virtual network on Amazon or, you know, going through one of the other uh, server providers. Um, and they may even set you up with a subnet in some cage somewhere and you're actually on, you know, running on uh, bare metal on, on the actual machine instead of virtual machines and uh, you know there are trade offs to that as well so you know wh- whatever your requirements are and what what you think is the most cost effective for your your clients or what they think is most effective for them because sometimes they just have an opinion and you know no matter what you say that's that's the way it's going to work you know, you may find yourself in a different position, but is oh sorry. But, I was but for, yeah, I was just going to say for small for smaller apps or depending on what the stack is that you're dealing with, you know, Heroku may be a really nice way to go because they just manage the whole thing and you just deploy via Git and you're done.
2: Well, and as you said, Eric, you're you're dealing with a lot more enterprise clients. I tend to deal with a lot more startup clients, so Heroku tends to suit them pretty well. Completely agree about the risk. I've had a uh, one client who uses Heroku who was concerned enough about having uh, some redundancy that they were talking about, and I, I think I, I parted ways with them before they got around to it, but they were talking about having a very simple VPS setup, just as an emergency backup, just in case. Um, but, yeah, you know, just something very simple they could cap deploy to, but using Heroku as their primary
3: system. Yeah, and that's something I want to bring up too, is some beginning, you know, Rubyists and our freelancers don't think about this, but you might your project might be to build this thing for a customer you know a piece of software that piece of software doesn't have to be one rails project you know for example i've had you know rather large rails project i was working on for a client and we needed to send email and this was all hosted on a vps and so instead of actually putting all that email code in the actual main rails app we built a simple app through it on heroku using Sinatra and I think the mail gym or pony gym or something like that and basically use Heroku's free hosting to do our mail. And so our actual main app just did a API call from the VPS to Heroku and sent our mail. Mm. And so you can actually kind of break apart apps if you want to, you know, take advantage of the certain things on the Heroku system, you know, like it's always up. They have integration with Sangrid or this and that and kind of figure out what your client really needs. And then from there devise how you're going to architect it all. Right. And so if you know if the mail server goes down for a little bit, that wasn't a problem because we in the mail app we had a, a simple queue. So it would just kinda store mail that wasn't, you know, the API failed or whatever.
2: And in fairness, I don't default well, for my own personal development, I tend to default to Heroku. With a client, I don't default to Heroku at all. It's usually a matter of, of assessing what they need. And often I find that Heroku tends to suit them better than dealing with their own hosting. But there have been a couple of – at least one occasion, I think, where having their own hosting made more sense. Um, It was mostly for, I think, similar reasons to what you cited, Eric, where the the client would not let certain pieces of information out of their control to get out of their control at all. So it had to be on dedicated hardware. So under those circumstances, well, there was no discussing it. That was going to be a cap deploy.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yep. So one other thing I want to get into here, um, and again, Eric's kind of alluded to this. He's using Nagios for monitoring so um do you set up monitoring for your client applications do you only worry about that once they're in production and you know kind of being used as a public site Uh, you know how do you kind of deal with that
3: um for my client applications i don't do any monitoring because once again they're you know they're business internal stuff some of them i can't even get to like i don't even have ssh access to one of my clients i have to push code to a repository say hey upgrade whenever you want here's the upgrade instructions um For my own stuff, I use a combination of pingdom, which just does a ping every I think five or fifteen minutes and make sure you know the request comes back. And then um, I have Nagios for heavier stuff, and Nagios tests like you know, first normal stuff is the site up, is Apache responding, but also is Postgres responding on an internal socket. Um, is memcache up and running, all that stuff. And so I actually have a combination of my Pingdom checks if my Nagios server's up, and my Nagios server checks if all the other services are up on certain apps. And then I kind of talked about this earlier. I have a, a hack together script that if Nagios detects there's an outage, what it will do is Nagios will email you, but email doesn't get read while you're sleeping. So my Nagios will actually call my cell phone using... Was it, Twilio or Twilio or whatever it is? And, you know, it'll say, hey, your server is down. Your server is down. Your server is down. And it'll keep calling me until I actually respond to it and say, hey, look, I'm fixing this, quit calling me type thing. And so I get that, like, you know, the 4 a.m. in the morning page to kind of get up and fix critical servers.
1: Right, makes sense. What about the rest of you guys? Monitoring, I'm, again, using Heroku,
3: but um, I,
2: I end up using New Relic a lot for performance, and New Relic also reports errors, so... Um, at least if things get egregiously bad, otherwise I'm using Airbrake. I mean, I'm not worrying about outages, you know, server outages when I'm using Heroku because if that goes down, well, I'm going to hear it <laughs> yeah. because a lot of things go down if Heroku goes down usually.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I, I generally, I either get a phone call from one of my clients because I, I I haven't really set up monitoring on, on this stuff, but again... Most of my clients are still in kind of a private beta or even alpha state. And so, you know, the only people using it are them and their friends. Um, and- Granted, i
2: have been kind of in the same boat there, too. I'm not I haven't had I've only had one client that was production deployed when I got there. And that was an entirely different story. So otherwise, yeah.
1: Yeah. But the other than that, I use Pingdom for my websites and, you know, as long as they're up and getting a response from Apache, I really don't worry too much about them. If something's broken, I tend to hear about it on Twitter, though. So
3: I will say, though, like having monitoring and being proactive about it and saying, hey, client, I just found your sites offline. I'm on the server right now fixing it. That is huge for goodwill. Like I've actually me and my wife were out shopping, I think, like Sunday at Ikea. So about an hour away from our house. And got a notification. I actually, on my iPhone, logged into the server. I don't know if I rebooted the server or whatever, but I fixed it and got their server back up and running, you know, within like 20 minutes of hearing that it was out. And that kind of stuff is like, a, it's not that hard to set up Pingdom, ping and it's really cheap um, as a service. And you can just get paid back so quickly on Goodwill. Even if the site's a, not very used or it's a private beta, there still might be people trying to use it. Yeah,
1: I, I think that's. I think that's true. So um, one other thing that I want to jump in on real
3: quick and just talk about is um,
1: am I the only one that's ever hosted my client's apps on my own servers?
3: I've done it um, on like I had a main server and I set it up. So like it would be whatever client, you know, client name dot clients dot my domain. And it was like a a cheap passenger type setup. But I only did that for a few months. Um, Ended up just telling the client they need to get their own staging server because it was killing the rest of the server. Yeah,
1: I, I kind of ran into the same thing with, with my client, and it was kind of interesting because uh, he switched it over. What he wound up doing was he went he was talking to another company about doing some of the mobile styling on his website, and so he moved it over to their server, and yeah, it, it looks like I lost him not too long after that. And so um, it was just, you know, but it, it it's turned out to be more of a pain than it's worth, and so I really like the approach that you guys have brought up where it's like, look, you know, here's, here are my recommendations for hosting. Um, Let's get something set up and then we will, you know, move it over and get it running over there. So.
3: I mean, the hosting industry in general, it's built on volume, like a lot of customers and it's built on support. Everything else, like the technical aspects and all that is very tiny compared to those two things. And so taking on you know hosting for your clients or doing any kind of reseller thing is really it's a completely different skill set than i think most people listening would actually have and it might not be an actual business kind of service they want to provide you know yeah. there's companies out there that are going to do it more inexpensively and better than you and it's outsourced if you don't have the skills for it in the way yeah but and this uh, is it, 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 yeah i'm still on that call so <laughs>
0: Oh, so, I mean, this hey. is the one hi Jeff, you woke up. This is the one thing that I mean, I'm fairly I would never ever host for somebody. I mean, it, it all it sounds like a good idea, right? I mean, no, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Go ahead, but there's oh well, they need a host anyways, and I can do it for them. It's the same as registering domain names for people, I don't do that either. I have one client that I actually bought an SSL certificate for, but even that's a headache. I mean. I I just, it sounds like easy money, I mean, it's going to be up most of the time, and I'll get whatever, 30, 40 bucks a, a month extra from this client. But I mean, it only takes one time for the server to go down in the middle of the night and a client to be upset with you or for you to have to get up and deal with it, it just to make it completely not worth it. Yep. I mean, I I don't have any. I don't want to do any server maintenance, anything with servers, really. Yeah,
1: it makes sense. It's it's one thing if it's your own deal, but yeah, I've I found that it just it turned out to not really be worth it. I mean, I have one client that I'm still hosting his his app for, but he's he's like super duper forgiving, and uh, you know realizes that I'm using the server for other things, and uh, you know so it it's it's okay there because you know if it's down, he just kind of hey it's down, and and then that's it. But, um, yeah, I've moved all of my other clients off and helped them find another place to put their app.
3: And that's something, like, I did this a while back, is if you're coming into it as a freelancer, it's like kind of a consultant. You can say, look, I don't provide hosting services, but here's a list of the hosting services that I recommend to my clients, and here's my own review and opinion of them. You can say, Heroku's inexpensive to get started on, it can be more or later, blah, 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 blah. But the point of like going to your client saying here's a resource of the, the tools and stuff that I don't provide, but I've used and in my opinion on them, you know that's that's another really good thing you can give to them. And it won't if you've been in the Rails community for a little bit, you can probably you know mash out a one-page PDF in about 20 minutes for that. It's not nothing crazy information-wise. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: All right, so should we get to the picks? Is there anything else that you guys want to add before we do that? Don't
3: um, no host. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, DevOps is fun and it's Mm kind of trendy, I guess, right now. But before you get into it, really think about if it's something you want. Like, I've always enjoyed tinkering on servers, so I have kind of a personal interest in it. And, you know, scripting servers has always been kind of a passion. But if you hate system administration, you hate servers, and you'd rather things just magically work in the, you know, the little cloud in the sky... Don't get into DevOps. You know, hire someone else to do it or pay someone like Heroku where they have most of the stuff set up. Don't think that you have to do DevOps or you have to do server administration because you don't.
1: Yep. So yeah, I, I totally agree. All right. Well, let's do the picks. Um, Eric, what are your picks?
3: Um okay, so there's one that's really relevant. I might have picked it before, but the pragmatic programmers have a book. I think it's called Deploying Rails. Let me mm-hmm. check it real quick. That's a fairly recent one, right? Is that? Yeah, there's there's what is, there's an older one, I yes. think Ezra wrote. Yes. Oh, no. So it's not deploying Rails applications as Ezra's. There's a new one that's out. Um, I'll put it in the show notes. But it basically walks through using Puppet of how you do DevOps. And it sets up you know the, the standard passenger stack. I think it sets up Postgres or maybe MySQL. Um, it actually sets up Nagios and uh, some things to actually graph like how your CPU is doing over time. It's a really good book, and I've actually copied and pasted some of the things right out of it. So that's a, that's my first pick. Um, the second pick is non DevOps related. It's called Zite Zite Z I T E. Um, it's an it's called a personalized magazine that gets smarter as you use it. Um, if you ever use Flipboard, it's kind of the same thing as Flipboard. It's an iOS or it looks like HP WebOS or Android you know app and it basically uses your google reader account and i think delicious and a whole bunch of other things and will kind of suggest things for you to read like i logged in with mine and it basically picked up automatically that i i liked reading about ruby on rails i liked reading about ruby and i liked reading about business and so it's like pretty customized and it actually gets you new content that you know you probably wouldn't see or you would have to find on like hacker news or on twitter so it's it's a pretty neat little app it's free and i've been using it for about a week now
1: all right. Um, Evan, what are your picks? I'm
3: going to one-up Eric
2: on Zite, and I'm going to mention a, uh, a new startup called Prismatic. They've been around – well, at least I've seen – I've been hearing about them on Twitter for a few weeks now, and I started using them – I guess it was a couple weeks ago. They uh, connect to your Twitter account, and what they do is they look at your Twitter feed, and they mine news out of there, and then they find content – With similar themes and similar topics to the content that it finds in your Twitter feed and then you can customize it from there telling it Which pieces of content you like and which ones you don't and then it continues to get smarter and smarter Um, And I've been loving it. I've actually been looking at prismatic more often than I look at my RSS feed because it well just seems to find me very interesting things because it seemed it's based on the people I fo- follow on Twitter and the people I follow on Twitter have similar interests to myself. So I'll also put out there, I have one invite left for Prismatic. So um, I guess I'll say that if you're interested in getting it, the first person to comment on this podcast when it goes out, if you want the invite, say you want the invite and get in touch with me and I'll send it to you. Um So a contest, oh my gosh. Um, Let's see, the other thing I was going to mention this week is I started using um, something called WeMux, which is a nice little wrapper around Tmux, which I typically use for remote pairing. Uh, I've been using it for a few days now, and it is Tmux, it's still Tmux, but it just makes using Tmux a little bit easier. Uh, Attaching to a Tmux session, or really a WeMux session, now doesn't require finding the socket in the file system to connect to anymore you find you actually run uh just Wimux attach and if there's only one session running boom you're in it so it just makes finding other tmux sessions easier and um so i'm I'm liking that for when i'm cl- when i'm pairing with clients remotely it's kind of it funny because that's how i use
3: my screen like yeah, that's how if, a lot of people use screen too. Well, I'm saying, I don't know if people know, but if you use screen space hyphen capital S and then, you know, text, a text, you actually label the session. And so I have like five or six sessions and I just say screen attach, you know, chirk or screen attach uh, system admin and it actually knows which one to attach to.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. All right. So I'll have a link to WeMux in the show notes. All right. Because I, I like Tmux over screen. So there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, it seems like the the two of them they're basically how, the same. Yeah, how long has TMUX been around?
2: Ah, uh, I don't
1: have a good sense of it.
2: I only started using it fairly recently, but I heard about it a couple years ago. I know it's. I think it's been longer than that.
1: Yeah, I know that uh, Screen has been around for freaking ever. But yes,
3: anyway. TMUX came out in two thousand nine, so about almost three years this September.
1: It's just a baby.
3: Yeah, so you looked on uh you looked on Wikipedia also. <laughs> Whereas GNU Gnu Screen came out in 1987.
1: Yay. Yeah, I think I I was on Twitter and it was kind of funny speaking of the Wikipedia stuff on when stuff came out. And I think it was Thomas Fuchs that he said that my favorite, it could have been somebody else, but he said my favorite uh, text editor was created in 1976 or something. And it turns out that that's when both Vi and Emacs were both released. They were both released the same year, mm. and so and I think I, I, he was kind of doing that tongue-in-cheek. But
2: so I've been, I've been using tmux locally. Actually, I was just experimenting with it today. I mean yesterday. Sorry, where I was doing all my development in my console using tmux. Uh, so that way I could switch shells without having to move my fingers over to where I makes me do what I could do it all very easily off of the uh, off of the letter keys. So my hands had to move less and I was kind of digging that just using Vim for my editor and uh, Tmux to control my shells.
3: Cool. It sounds really cool. Yeah, we should do a, sh- a show on that like you guys would be pretty you guys would be like, oh my god, what the hell is Eric doing? If you saw like what I was using because everything's on the keyboard for me.
1: Nice. All right, Jeff, what are your picks?
0: All right, mine are uh, The Solar Clipper, Golden Age of the Solar Clipper by Nathan Lowell. We've probably talked about it before if we haven't. If we have, then it's a repeat. But If uh, we haven't, then you, you should listen to it. It's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and so the thing is, I bought the first three books, and he's been waiting for like six months now to get the fourth book published a bunch of stuff with the editor and finally evan mentioned it the other week i don't know he mentioned it a while ago about listening to it and i forgot you could listen to it and so yep. i went through the last three books in the last week or so and- <laughs> yep I, it's kind of like what i did you couldn't stop listening
2: right yeah it sounds no, really addicting yeah, they so, really yeah. Are.
0: i was up really late listening to them when i did it a sort of, I don't know, an anti productivity tip, sort of like <laughs> anti sleep, mass tip. effect or something. <laughs> so that's one. The second one is uh, Chronomate. I mentioned Eon a while ago. Eon, I don't want to say jumped the shark, but they jumped the shark and went from a $20 single purchase or whatever that connected to uh, a ton of different services for time tracking to a $20 service that connected to nothing and you have to pay 5 bucks a service you want to connect to within app purchase but so i found chronomate it hooks up to freshbooks and it's got this interesting feature that lets you round up your time tracking so if you bill in 10 minute increments or 15 minute increments it'll round up for you which is uh, i don't know convenient if you do that stuff but it hooks into fresh books and works pretty well. I've been using that. So those are mine. All
1: right, cool. So uh, I'll jump in with my picks then. Um, the first one that I'm going to pick is something that has been probably recommended on this show. Um, but it's something that I just kind of finally got around to getting into. And that is uh, Getting Things Done or GTD. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, uh, Evan is a very big proponent of this. and um, Physically and literally. so I read I've read the first 20% of the book I'm reading it on my Kindle so I have no idea how many pages I've read but uh anyway um I started applying just the stuff that's covered in like the first two chapters and I have to say that it's already made a huge difference I mean I'm not worried about what I forgot to do
2: it's a load off your mind right yeah
1: and the thing is is the funny thing is, is that I I am getting more done, um, which you would think, okay, well, having all of the 10 million things that I've had to do in this list, well, now I know how much I'm not getting done, but that's really not the case. It's really kind of interesting. So, um, you know, I've made progress in a lot of different areas that I've wanted to make, um, you know, make progress in. And, you know, I have this information that, you know, I just, I just drop it into things is what I'm using right now. And I, I've had several people tell me, yeah, once you finish and kind of get your head around the process, things won't do everything you want it to do yeah,
2: Let's... CW. I'm gonna let you finish, but uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but uh, as far as GTD goes, what I tell I buy I bought that book for a lot of people. and what I tell most folks is just get through the first exercise. and if you're not feeling less stressed out by the end of the first exercise, fine, stop reading. But if you are feeling less stressed out, you owe it to yourself to get through it all.
1: So I haven't read anything, that said this is an exercise. do this. I, I think I'm still just you know, I I've just made it through like kind of like the intro of, this is how this is how it works and this is kind of how we think about it but I'll tell oh, really? you really
2: yeah so you, you haven't gotten to the dump everything in your brain on a piece of paper no. kind of exercise oh wow
1: no okay.
2: it's good to do even if you don't do the no rest kidding of the system. right exactly yeah. but but but, that, that, but that's the start of it
1: but but anyway he was talking about like Um, their next steps and you have um, you know you're gonna have like a a next steps list and a a someday list and you know this kind of stuff but he hasn't actually said okay so to get started you need to first you need to go and do this it was just kind of a here's a quick overview of the system and um, you know and so the thing is is as I've gone along you know I've just kind of applied that because you know it, it made such intuitive sense that it was really easy to integrate with my workflow And so, I mean, just doing that and just getting it into things and, you know, I I don't know if I'm sorting it all correctly, but I mean, even just what I've been been able to do has made a huge difference. So I'm really looking forward to you know, getting more of this, uh, in place and, and making it work. So, um, anyway, I'm, I'm super excited about it and I'm probably going to finish the book this weekend. Awesome. But, uh, anyway, cause honestly, it, it's also freed up a bunch of time, believe it or not, I'm getting more done and I'm freeing up more time. So, you know, all of this being said, it's just, it, it's just been awesome for me. So I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Um, I think I picked, uh, things on a past show, so I'm not going to pick it today. Um, but, uh, one other thing that I really want to, to pick, I'm not sure if I've, uh, I've picked this before. I know I've picked it on other shows, but, uh, LastPass is something that I use a lot. Um, and many of you know that I have uh, a virtual assistant and the nice thing about LastPass is it allows you to share passwords. Now I understand that it's not totally secure. I I think you can inspect the the password field and get the password back or something. But I mean, if these people aren't technical and they're not, you know, they're not using trickery to work around it, then, you know, you can share passwords and you shouldn't be putting in passwords that they can just steal and remember and whatever anyway um but it's it's really nice so you know everything i do now logging into my bank account and this and that and the other it's all in last pass but the i've only shared like the the passwords to my podcast websites and things like that that my va needs to just do his job and it's it's just been so so nice uh to be able to get that stuff done so um yeah if you want to check it out i've, I've also heard good things about one password but i'm not sure what its capabilities are so um what do you and, want to know that's what i use well does it do the, all those same things I'm-
2: i i heard some of that let's
1: see so in, in
2: uh one password uses dropbox or can use dropbox for synchronization so i use it on my ipad my iphone and my mac um i suppose if you really wanted to share it with someone else then you could put it in a Dropbox folder that you share with a particular user, uh-huh. and then they could get access to all your. Well, you would have to give them your master password because it's also an encrypted file. Right. Um, but if you give them access to that directory and Dropbox and the master password, then they could get to all your passwords as well. Right. So, well, but so- isn't
3: Last Password kind of built where you can put in all your normal passwords, but then? They get their own password that unlocks one password they're allowed access to. So from, I think at a different service. Oh, that's sweet. So, uh,
1: so LastPass is software as a service. So, uh, so you put your passwords into their system okay. and you have a plugin for your browsers. I believe it does work on the iPad and iPhone and all them as well. Mm-hmm, sure. um, I haven't done a whole lot with it because I generally don't browse a whole lot on my iPad um, or on my Android phone so I just never bothered but anyway so then what you do is you go in and you say share this password with the person at this email address and so then they can go in they set up a LastPass account or if they already have one that's fine too and then um, it uh, it will add that password to their account so then you can give them piecemeal access to just the things that they need access to so
2: yeah one password is a app that you buy on multiple platforms it's not a software as a service
1: right So anyway, I mean, I can definitely see where, you know, 1Password is probably a little more secure if it's an encrypted file on your machine, you know, that you have to have the master password to in order to unlock. But if you need to share passwords and stuff, which is something that I'm finding myself more and more needing to do, then LastPass is really paid off that
0: way. Yeah, that sounds nice that
1: way. So anyway, um, I I think we're done. Um, Thanks, everyone, for listening. We are talking about doing a book club. We're probably going to read Get Clients Now. Um, we're trying to line, line up a date with the author of the book or at least somebody from, uh, his or her organization. So, um, you know, once we have a date on that, then, um, then we'll let you know. But in the meantime, go ahead and pick up the book. I'll have a link in the show notes where you can get it on Amazon and, um, yeah, that, that would just be great. You can, uh, you can go read it. That should get you going with your marketing stuff and, uh, yeah. Uh, beyond that, we'll we'll catch you all next week, or in two weeks. We're going to be in two weeks because I'm at RailsConf next next week, so...
3: Well, and only Chuck knows how to record these things. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I dial Skype and push a button, so...
3: Yeah, well, the, the dialing Skype and pushing the button, that's like two steps that will cause Skype to crash, so...
1: I know, if you do it at the same time. I'm actually recording this on an external device, <laughs> so... So, yeah, I don't know how that could screw Skype up, but it might could. It might could? It might could. It might could. All right. Well, anyway, uh, so two weeks. Later.
2: Hasta la vista, baby. I did it.